Oh, yes. Yes, you can hear all right. Great. Okay. Um, how you all doing? Okay. Looks like mostly okay. Good. Um, I look forward to talking to the rest of you in the future practice discussion groups. I really enjoyed meeting people today, and I really appreciate everyone's practice and sharing and, and real work um, that we're all doing. Tonight, we're going to talk about five unavoidable situations. So this is a teaching of the Buddha. It actually appears a couple of times in the suttas, and we're going to look at this teaching embedded in a particular story that I think is um, helpful, poignant. So the sutta is called With Narada, and Narada is a monk, and it's found in the Anguttara Nikaya, so the numerical discourses in the Book of Fives, number 50. And at one time, the Venerable Narada was staying near Pataliputta in the Chicken Monastery. Now, at that time, King Munda's dear and beloved Queen Bada had just passed away. And since that time, the king didn't bathe, anoint himself, eat his meals, or apply himself to his work day and night. He brooded over King Bada, I mean Queen Bada's corpse. Then King Munda addressed his treasurer, Pieka. So, my good Pieka, please place Queen Bada's corpse in an iron case filled with oil, and then close it up with another case so that we can view Queen Bada's body even longer. Yes, your majesty, replied Pieka, the treasurer, and he did as the king instructed. Then it occurred to Pieka, King Munda's dear and beloved queen Bada has passed away, and since then the king doesn't bathe, anoint himself, eat his meals, or apply himself to his work. Day and night he broods over queen Bada's corpse. Now, what ascetic or Brahmin might the king pay homage to whose teaching could help the king give up sorrow's arrow? Then it occurred to Pieka, this venerable Narada is staying in the chicken monastery at Pataliputta. He has this good reputation. He's astute, competent, intelligent, learned, a brilliant speaker, eloquent, mature, a perfected one. So... This monk has the reputation of being an arahant, someone who's an excellent teacher. All arahants are not excellent teachers, in case you wonder. You know, this idea of being perfected, people still have their personalities and their kind of human abilities. And so you might have someone who completely realizes the truth, but they might not be, you know, really into teaching, or they might not be good at explaining themselves, etc. But this monk apparently 
was a good teacher. And so Piyaka is thinking, you know, what if King Munda was to pay homage to Venerable Narada? So paying homage meaning going to see him, paying respects, making himself available for Venerable Narada to teach him and support him. Hopefully when he hears Narada's teaching, the king could give up sorrow's arrow. Then Pika went to the king and he said to him, Sire, this venerable Narada is staying in the chicken monastery at Pataliputta. He has this good reputation. He's astute, competent, intelligent, learned, a brilliant speaker, eloquent, mature, a perfected one. What if your majesty was to pay homage to venerable Narada? Hopefully when you hear Narada's teaching, you could give up sorrow's arrow. So you wonder what the king's thinking at this point, right? Maybe. What the king says is, well then, my good Piyaka, let Narada know. For how could one such as I presume to visit an ascetic or a Brahmin in my realm without first letting them know? So talk to him, ask him. Yes, your majesty, replied Piyaka, the treasurer. And then this part in um, italics here is really the ellipses, the summarization. Piyaka goes to Venerable Narada. Uh, He explains what's going on with the king, that the queen has passed away, how the king has taken this. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, imagine, you know, this person is leading a realm, and he's just out of commission. And this treasurer, a lot of times the treasurer has a lot of power. He's like his number one right-hand guy, you know. He's got to do something. <laughs> and so he tells, talks to him about the situation, and he asks him, um, if he could, if he would see the king and teach him. And Venerable Narada says he will. So the, the, the treasurer, Pika, goes back to the king and he says, okay, Venerable Narada says you can come. And the king says, well, prepare the chariots or carriages. And he comes with all the full kind of royal entourage and whatever, you know. And he comes to Venerable Narada. And then after he pays respects and sits down, the Venerable Narada says to him, Great King, there are five things that cannot be had by anyone, basically. Any ascetic or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. These five unavoidable situations. What five? That someone liable to growing old, to have an old age, should not grow old. Like, we all know that. You know, if we had our way, we might say, no, I think I want to still be like I'm 30, 20-something, whatever. (laughs) That's not how it works. Um, I don't know how some of you who are like around my age have experienced this, but it seems to me like the last 15 years just shot past me. 69, huh? Whoa. 
all right? It's what happens. As um, someone said to me the other day, it happens to the best of us. (laughs) Someone liable to get sick does not get sick. And of course, this is also true for every, every human being, in fact, every living being. Someone liable to death should not die. Something liable to destruction should not be destroyed, or something liable to be lost should not be lost. And then Venerable Narada goes on to contrast the ordinary person with a noble disciple. Like, how do you deal with that? And he says, an uneducated, ordinary person, when they have someone liable to old age that grows old, they don't reflect on old age in this way. It's not just me who has someone liable to old age who grows old. For all sentient beings have someone liable to old age who grows old. As long as sentient beings come and go, pass away, and are reborn, If I were to sorrow and wail and lament, beating my breast and falling into confusion just because someone liable to old age grows old, I'd lose my appetite and my physical appearance would deteriorate, my work wouldn't get done, my enemies would be encouraged, and my friends would be dispirited. And so when someone liable to old age grows old, because the ordinary person doesn't think this way, They sorrow and wail and lament, beating their breast and falling into confusion. This is called an uneducated, ordinary person struck by sorrow's poisoned arrow who only mortifies themselves. So this gives an idea of how the the Buddha thought about these experiences that we can't avoid and how human beings ordinarily fall into so much grief over it. And then he's going to talk about the noble disciple. So this exact teaching also came from the Buddha. Venerable Narada is just repeating it. And, and then the following part of the passage repeats this exact text every time. For death, for sickness, for death, for the destruction of something, or for the loss of something. Now, the educated noble disciple, this is no surprise either. You know, I said earlier, or I can't remember if I, I think I told all, it said this when all of us were together, that <clears throat> this, the teachings were passed down with a lot of repetition. It makes it much easier to remember So you can see in that first part, it's the ordinary person doesn't think this way. It's already given us the whole story of how the noble disciple thinks, right? The noble disciple thinks someone, if you have someone liable to grow old, to old age, grows old, they reflect on old age this way. It's not just me who has someone liable to old age who grows old. For all sentient beings have someone liable to old age who grows old. As long as sentient beings come and go and pass away and are reborn. 
If I were to sorrow and wail and lament, beating my breast and falling into confusion just because someone's liable to old age grows old, I'd lose my appetite, etc. And so when someone's liable to old age and grows old, they don't sorrow and wail and lament, beating their breast and falling into confusion. This is called an educated noble disciple who has drawn out sorrow's poisoned arrow, struck by which uneducated ordinary people only mortify themselves. Sorrowless, free of thorns, that noble disciple only extinguishes themselves. Um, extinguishes. They. This is a bit of a funny kind of translation here, but they realize the truth. They're calmed. They're completely cool. So then the same text for sickness, death, destruction, and loss. Now, of course, in this case, King Munda is really interested in the death part. So if we go through this same text, when you have someone who's liable to death, which is every living being, and they die, the reflection is, I'm not the only one who loses someone in this way for someone who dies, because that happens to every sentient being. If I were to sorrow and wail and lament, beating my breast, falling into confusion, just because someone who's liable to die dies, I'd lose my appetite, my physical appearance, etc. So this is intended as a reflection that we practice with and help ourselves become comfortable with before we get to that point where someone passes away. And it's part of what helps us be ready for that. It doesn't mean that there isn't any feeling around it or adjustment that has to be made, but you see people who have practiced in this way for a long time, and they have a very different approach, a very different experience. And I know this for myself. When my father died suddenly, I, wasn't, I was the untaught ordinary person, and I was totally distraught. And I didn't have any real, I didn't have any tools, capacity, any way to really deal with it. It was one of those situations where he was in a family that all, everybody lived into their 90s. Some of my great aunties lived into their hundreds. And his, my grandfather was still alive. And my father died of a thoracic aneurysm at the age of 69, my age now. And everybody was like, it's too soon. I mean, he's a farmer, he was strong, robust. He just got back, my parents just got back from traveling to Alaska. The big tour bus broke down with a flat tire, and my dad and another guy, who was a, probably also a farmer, went out and changed the tire. I mean, you know, dad, he's supposed to be kind of like going on for at least another 30 years, right? <laughs> Bam. Didn't feel good that day gone. And I was on the phone with him because he didn't feel good. He called me that morning because they, they lived in Indiana and I was living in California. 
And he called me that morning, and he told me he wasn't feeling good. His stomach felt funny and stuff, and asked me what to do. And I gave him some of the things I do when I feel what sounded like that. And, and then I called in the evening to find out how he was doing, and we were talking on the phone. And my mom was on the other line, so I'm talking to both of them. And then my dad said... I'm going to have to go sit down. I'm not feeling well enough to be on the phone. I love you, Laura. That's my lay name. That's how we always ended the conversation. And my mom stayed on and talked to me a little bit more. And then we said goodbye. And just a few minutes later, the phone rang again. She found him in his recliner, dead. And... I mean, for her, uh, <laughs> you know, how many of you have been in this kind of situation? You know, people, this is what happens, right? This is what happens in human life, and that's what the Buddha was trying to tell us, you know. Get ready, and it's okay. And then, you know, it's it's like working with that shock, working, even if it's, even if it's some, someone's been going through a long illness, most of the time we feel like the day it happens, it's too soon or I didn't expect it. It's really a very weird thing. The human mind really goes to great lengths to try to push this off. And that's exactly what the Buddha is saying. We need to look at reality as it really is. It doesn't mean we become negative or... Um, somber or depressed about life, actually seeing reality as it is brings more brightness and lightness and joy into our life. And when things happen, we have a different response. It's like, yeah, I expected this. We suddenly get sick with some, you know, major disease, and we go, I expected this. Because you're preparing. One of the monks in the Sri Lankan tradition, which is, we're kind of half-half Thai Sri Lankan. There's a whole story around the history of that, but he's great. He has a monastery in Virginia. Some of you might know Bhante Gunaratana. And he's like 95 now. But a number of years ago, when he was quite a bit younger, he went into the hospital for heart surgery and he said he had this opportunity to talk. The four different doctors came to visit him uh, before going in for the surgery. His main surgeon and assistant surgeon and the anesthesiologist, and I don't remember who else the other person was. And he said each time he had this chance to say to them, you know, if this doesn't go well, I don't want you to blame yourself. It's okay. I've been a monk. These Sri Lankan guys, they ordain at like 9, 10, 12 years old. They, get, they really start early. He said, ever since I was like 22 or something, I've reflected on death every night before I go to sleep. This is really okay. <laughs> Whatever happens here, no problem. 
I know of a family who, a Thai family, living in San Francisco, who supported the Bhikkhuni Monastery that I was part of for a while in San Francisco. And they they liked for us to go on alms round. I don't know if you all know what that is. You take your bowl like we do coming in here, and you walk through through the streets, and people put things in it. And they always wanted to intercept the bhikkhunis when they came through and give them a meal. And getting to know them a bit, this was a family with a couple of daughters that were maybe like 8, 10, 12, I'm not sure, something in that area. And we learned that the father had cancer. And, you know, the continual process of kind of doing better and then not and and there came the point where he passed away, or, and they knew it was coming. It was amazing to see how happy, contented they came into that experience. And prepared. It's like there's an acceptance, an understanding. They really prepared. They prepared their daughters. They themselves it's a kind of an amazing thing um, to see. It's a kind of, there's some cultural difference too. It's like culturally, from what I understand from monks who have lived in Thailand a long time, Ajahn Brahm, if you've ever heard of him, he talks about this. Living in Thailand, the monastery where my son ordained and lived, they have a cremation, um, what do you call it? cremation pyre area where they would cremate the bodies of the people who pass away in the village or whoever brings their uh, loved one's body. And that this, Ajahn Brahm said he saw this over and over and over again. And the family is not in tears. There's a different attitude, a different approach around this passing away of someone in your life. And of course, there's going to be that missing them. Of course, there's going to be a big adjustment to make. Of course, there might be a wish that they could be there longer. But there's also something much deeper going on, this reflection of the nature of things, there being a time when this is going to happen. There was a monk who... Um, gave a lot of talks at funerals. His name was uh, Venerable Udai. He was uh, living in Thailand. He was actually appointed by the king to be the sort of head um, sort of administrator over the Thai forest Sangha back in the 20th century, so like the early 1900s, 1924-25. He gave a lot of funeral talks at the big monastery where he lived. And one of them, he says to the people, think of death as a friend. You're going to need that when it's time. And he said, and when is it the right time? It's whenever it comes. And so it's like an encouragement by the Buddha to really reflect on these five situations in a way that's, somewhat different from what we usually do. We usually 
Well, how is it for you? Feels like it's wrong. Something's wrong. Something is happening that shouldn't happen. When the Buddha's trying to tell us, but isn't this the way it happens always throughout history, throughout all human lives, throughout all lives of sentient beings? What if we take that in and really use the the ground of our spiritual practice as the basis, the Dhamma, as the basis of our stability and our acceptance of nature as it is? The leaves fall. There was one monk who said just some young person had passed away and he was at his kuti, and there was a wind storm, and there were all these fallen leaves and branches. He said he saw some that were brand-new green leaves on the ground, and he thought, yeah, that's how it is. Sometimes it's the old wizened leaves. Sometimes it's the brand-new green ones. So it can be hard to take this in and understand the, the kindness and compassion and empathy that's also there unless you really have some experience or context with this happening, with this kind of deep understanding and acceptance of the true nature of life. So then, Venerable Narada said, these are the five things that cannot be had by anyone. So this is another aspect that is important to notice. The Buddha said, not anyone, not even the devas or angels, not even the, the gods. The, there's, there's no one in the Buddhist um, understanding of reality that doesn't face death. Every realm, every one, there's impermanence. And so this cannot be had by any person, religious person, or deva, or mara, brahman, brahma, or anyone in the world. Sorrowing and lamenting doesn't do even a little bit of good. When they know that you're sad, your enemies are encouraged, which... I can see that kind of statement for the king in particular. (laughs) You know, it's like um, when an astute person doesn't waver in the face of adversity as they're able to assess what's beneficial. They're they're this saying, what's going to help the situation? Their enemies suffer seeing that their normal expression doesn't change. And, And this isn't because you stuff it. This is because you understand. Chants, recitations, fine sayings, charity, or you know, making donations or traditions, if by means of such things you benefit, then by all means keep doing them. So this, this teaching of the Buddha, like, okay, you may have a tradition of what you do when someone passes away. You know, my grandmother got married in black, because her father died that year. And that's how they honored 
the person who passed away. And we all have our ways, our cultural ways, our traditions, you know, what we do to support others. We bring food to the family or flowers or whatever. You know, do all those things that help. But then it says, but if you understand that, well, this is, this is like, you know, what does it mean to benefit if it's an illness? I mean, obviously someone passes away, you're not going to bring them back. But let's say there's an illness or some kind of loss or something's destroyed. Maybe there's a way that we take steps to recover whatever that was. Or the illness is you recover from the illness. You're doing what you can. So basically the Buddha says, do what you can. Seek out the medical support. Do what you can to change this. You know, do what you can to bring good health to yourself or help your loved one um, recover from whatever is happening. But then, if you understand that I can't change this. You get to that point where you know you can't turn it to a different direction. He says, then accept it without sorrow, thinking the karma is really strong. What can I do now? (coughs) Now, this teaching is something that usually we give when people have had a lot of dharma, a lot of dharma teaching under their belt. And that's not true for everybody here. So I want you to really try to take it in with an interest in investigating this in case it hits you in a way that's like, whoa, that's just too much for me. (laughs) You know? Take it in and see if it, you know, what happens when you explore this? When I discovered this sutta, I was really, I found it uplifting. It's like this idea, we do what we can, but we can't change the direction things are going all the time. Sometimes we just we have to say, okay, this is what this is the way it's going. Now what can I do? There's always something we can do. There's always some good we can do, some kindness, some kind of loving support we can give. When this was said, the king said to Venerable Narada, what's the name of this teaching? He said, great king, this exposition of the teaching is called pulling out sorrow's arrow. Indeed, sir, this is the pulling out of sorrow's arrow. Hearing this teaching, I've given up sorrow's arrow. And King Muninda addressed his treasurer, Piyaka, well then, my good Piyaka, cremate Queen Bada's corpse and build a monument. From this day forth, I'll take care of myself. I'll eat. I'll work. And, you know, I've heard a lot of stories, and maybe you have too, about a person being in the throes of really suffering with a loss. I remember one woman, she said she was in the hall in the hospital. And I think it was a child of hers 
who was critically ill. And she was so, so distraught. And I, a man came along, and I think her expression was something like, why is this happening to me? And he said, why not? And somehow that hit her in a way that was like, oh, yeah, why not? She said she just lifted up out of that. And so you kind of can see, well, I think I, think I kind of get where this king was and how he came out of it in a way. Hmm. I have another plan for you. (laughs) But before we, if we want a break, we can take one. But first, tell me about what you think of this or how it's landing or questions. Yeah, go ahead. No. I didn't think so, but I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, no. No. Describing is the ordinary reaction is just a churning of suffering, right? And I I know people, I know, um, I have a sister who's a poet and a writer, and she used to thrive on the darkest poetry. I mean, it celebrates suffering. Yeah. But Buddhists would never see that as something to celebrate. It's not some valuable good that's right that I could suffer more than anybody else at the loss of my life I'm serious yeah there are people there are poets who just you know I I don't know a lot of artists really create out of that um, experience of suffering and yes from the Buddha's perspective now we have to remember the Buddha's whole search was for the complete relief the complete ending of suffering. That his his belief or his motivation was, I want to find a way out of this. There's a very beautiful sutta in, in the very early text that talks about taking up arms. So it's, a, it's like looking at people in battle against each other. And we have to remember, he was raised in a, you know, one of the families in his country where that ruled. And so he saw this, you know, this is where, you know, people fighting against each other. And he's and he says in this in this sutta that that's what he saw that frightened him. He there it's like there's no end to it. There's no end to the way people fight with each other and there's no end to the destruction and death. And he wanted to find the way out. And the way out doesn't come by somehow becoming immortal. It's one of the things I appreciate about Buddhism. The Buddha died. He was sick. He had back back aches, headaches. He was sick. He got old. He died. And he showed us how you can do that without the mental suffering. There's a physical suffering, yeah, that's just part of the deal of having a body. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's overcoming, it's going beyond the mental suffering. And so, no, the Buddha wouldn't glorify that at all. He would say this, you know, it's looking at the reality, the truth of the way things are. And there's something, you know, like I said before, when we see the Dhamma, when we see reality, have that direct experience, there's so much joy that comes. There is something in the spiritual experience. And I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, but I bet you have. When my grandparents died, when my first my grandfather died, six months later my grandmother died, they were both very precious to me. And there was some very strange spiritual uplift in the process of being with that reality of their death. And there's, maybe it's because the divide between this world and the next world is somehow thinner. I don't know. But there's something, and there's something that happens when we practice the Dhamma, where the Dhamma rises up very strong in us when we come to these critical points in time. And maybe that's what was happening in that family I was describing, how they could be happy and at peace with what was going on. It's like there's this fuel. And and even when we have a direct experience and realization of everything falling apart, everything is impermanent, everything falls away, that there's an incredible joy that arises with that experience. For one thing, a relief that we don't have to keep trying to hold it together and shore it up. It's on the skids, (laughs) and we can let it go. Yes, Sophie? I understand what you're saying about accepting the reality. I'm not hearing is grief. Grief is a reality also and related to how much love you have. There's the story of Milropa whose son dies and he bursts into tears and the disciples all run over to him and say, but Master, you can't be crying. You've been t- telling us how. He said, this is my son and I am grieving. It's a reality. And the, I love the story also of the Buddha and the woman with the baby that died has to go find a family that hasn't had it. Um, but that story is exactly exemplifying it's exactly this. It's yes, saying once you story, realize but what this story does not have is a recognition of grief. The king is in grief and that's a reality also. He does not say I am so sorry, I feel for doesn't say any of the things that make grief. Yeah, and actually, by being the one person who doesn't say that to him, he helps the king overcome it. Probably. And the story that you're talking about, Milarepa, the Buddha would say there's no way that an arahant would cry about someone passing away. But he doesn't dismiss grief. Dismiss It's not like it's it's not a brushing away, a callousness. There's empathy, there's compassion, but
But there's also the the definite reality that to waste your life energy, your to to have this view that this is something that we should cry over, that we should not that it's wrong to cry, never feel bad about what you feel that comes up. But when those feelings come up, to practice with those feelings, knowing that you can, you know, work work your way through them, feel your way through them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very different approach than, you know, well, this is how I feel and this is how I'm supposed to feel, and you kind of linger with it. And that's not what the Buddhist teaching is. Like, you don't linger with it. You don't hang on to it. You don't cling to it. You let it go. You feel it and you let it go. And that's where this, this, this distinction of the noble disciple and the ordinary person. Melarepa was acting like an ordinary person in that case. And that's a story that ordinary people like. But this is a story about liberation and how we can all experience that. And and yeah, and, but then what do you do? There's a reality to tears. Mm-hmm. Tears are the body's expression of the release of a deep emotion. And when that comes, is com- the Buddha saying you should not have a deep emotion here? He's saying that whatever deep emotion you have, turn towards it, and be present with it and see its cause, and let it go. That's what you do with feeling. And the reality, when we really come to that point, where we see reality for what it is, whatever feeling arises, you know it's just a feeling. Whatever feeling arises, you know it's just a feeling. It doesn't have this impact anymore in the same way as it would before you understand that. So it's like honoring grief. Like I said, the Buddha's um, encouragement is not to ever feel like, well, I shouldn't feel this way. It's to turn towards that feeling. Be, Be with it. Move through it. Understand it. Care for each other when we're feeling these feelings, but it's for the purpose of seeing the reality and letting them go. Not for sort of honoring them or even expecting that they should be there. When my father died, my mother... Oh, actually, her younger brother died a few years earlier. And she felt like she should be crying all the time. And if she started to go about her normal business, she thought, I'm not thinking about him. I'm a bad sister. I should be more racked over this. I mean, she was terribly. Um, 
Yeah. But to, but to recognize that this is also suffering and to treat it as suffering. Yes. What's interesting is that there, there, um, in all these stories, there's a big difference between the stories when the death is sudden and unexpected than when it's seen that it's coming and can prepare. Um, that isn't really true in the suttas. I just want to say, I mean, many deaths in the suttas are sudden, but the ones, the enlightened ones, have the same reaction. I think it's a really important point, and it suggests that in a culture where death is so quickly swept to the side and hidden away, we need to even put more conscious effort into reflecting on death and taking it into our life experience as natural, a part of it, what we'll all experience, and then becoming more um, friendly with it. More ready. Yes, first, you. Um, um, Dorita? Do your name? Donna. Okay, Donna. Sorry. Please go ahead, Donna. Is it a year to live? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
grass wrapper, just like clothes, you know. There's a beauty, there's a gift in that. Yeah. There's a gift if we don't get too caught up in fear. You know, so it's this, this grabbing that we have to relax and then, you know, we can yeah, do the best we can and love what we can love while we But I do think the teachings are, you know, it may be this story and this sutta and this mm-hmm. Yes. They all say, yes. you know, and they're all getting us ready. Mm-hmm. And helping us live this life with more richness, and that's what's coming after this slide. You know, why? Why do we do this? Why do we look at this? Why are we pondering this? Why are we taking this in and reflecting on that? Why was Bhante Gunaratana reflecting on that every night before he went to sleep? I know one woman who said she... The five precepts. The five precepts. Yeah. Oh, what you're talking about isn't the five precepts, but the five reflections. reflections. Recollections, yeah. We're going to do those later tonight. They're in your chanting book. This is it. I'm the owner of my deeds or karma. That's the last one at the bottom. And the heir to my karma, the karma karma that I the action that I do are my womb, my relative, my refuge. This is one translation. I shall be the heir of whatever deeds I do, whether good or bad. That's what you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah, and that book, the A Year to Live, is really good. I mean, I worked through it. My son and I did it together a long time ago, maybe in the late 1990s or mid-1990s. And its its intention is to help us live our life with more immediacy and and value and realize that it's not going to go on forever. And that's what this sutta talks about here, too. Does anyone else want to? There were more hands before we go on. Yeah. Just quickly, um, reminding me that the first time I recognized mortality, my father's stroke, which he survived, and by hesitation, my mortality. Yes. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's not easy to face. Yeah. It's a lot easier to face when we make it a practice to reflect upon it. 
And it's a lot easier to make our life really valuable when we make it a practice to reflect upon it. And so what you see here is, this is also from the Numerical Discourses 557. Mendicants, a woman or a man, a lay person or a renunciant. That covers everybody. <laughs> Whether you want to be a monastic or you want to be a lay person, whatever your gender, we, we've started leaving the gender part out of it. <laughs> whatever gender. You should re- often review these five subjects. I'm liable to grow old. I have not gone beyond aging. I am not exempt from old age. Whether you're a layperson or a renunciant, you should often reflect on this, review this. I'm liable to get sick. I'm not exempt from sickness. I'm liable to die. I'm not exempt from death. I must be parted and separated from all that I hold dear and beloved. And the translation we'll be chanting is, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I'm the owner of my kama, I'm the heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama. I abide supported by my kama. Whatever kama I do, for good or for ill, that, I've, that I will be the heir. So it's our, it's our deeds, it's our actions, it's our habits that go with us um, that provide the ground on which we live, create the situations we experience to a large degree. So why? What's the advantage to doing this? For anyone thinking, what's the advantage to thinking, I'm liable to grow old, I'm not exempt from old age. There are sentient beings who, intoxicated with the vanity of youth, do bad things by way of body, speech, and mind. Reviewing this subject often, they entirely give up the vanity of youth, or at least reduce it. Does that make sense, what the vanity of youth is? The Buddha said this is what happened to him. He thought about getting old. He said, I'm also going to get old. He said, if I look at someone who's old and I feel repulsed by that, that's not correct because I'm also liable to get old. And he said when he realized that, he lost all intoxication with youth. So that intoxication is a very useful way to think about it. We're intoxicated with our youth. We feel like we're going to be young forever. We're practically invincible. I mean, even now, you know, I think about, I just got a phone call from this friend. I haven't heard from her in ages. She just called me while we were at the cottage. And... The husband of this couple is 95 now. And I haven't seen them in a long time in it. And our first encounters were maybe 20, 25 years ago. And she's talking about those days when we were around each other more. And I'm thinking, yeah, like, how many more years does Peter have? How many more years do I have? i got to take this seriously. 
this is my chance now. She was talking about how they had been in Thailand and she was staying at the monastery that we're intending to visit in November. How many more times will I be able to go? She can't go now. She's beyond that point. That is going to happen so soon. But we don't live like that's what's going to happen. We let chances slide by us. We let chances slide by us to tell people we love them. We let chances slide by us to forgive. I know someone who says every interaction, she's in business, she says every interaction I leave it in a good way because I don't know if I'm ever going to see that person again. And we really take this seriously. It's not like to bring us down. It's to really bring us indirect experience with life. What's the advantage of reviewing? I'm liable to get sick. I'm not exempt from sickness. Well, there are sentient beings who are intoxicated or drunk on the vanity of health. They do bad things by way of body, speech, and mind. So when we review this, when they review this, they entirely give up the vanity of health, or at least reduce it. We might even have some disregard for people who are sick. If we haven't experienced that ourselves or we feel like we're somehow exempt from that. And then to have the empathy, the understanding, and the sober reality that this is what can happen any minute. Any minute. We have a friend, a couple, that I said that we were dedicating the merit of this this time with, you know, I don't exactly know what's been going on, but suddenly discovering that there are all kinds of spots through her body. And I remember once, um, this was a long time ago, 20 plus, 25 years ago, I was visiting the monastery in Northern California called Abayagiri, and the neighbor to the monastery, her name was Mary. She had been uh, in a play acting, a local local acting company. And, um, and she was performing in this play, and then she couldn't finish it because she was, something was wrong. And when she went to the doctor, they said they needed to do surgery right away. And they found out she was so full of cancer, they couldn't do anything. And so she was in the hospital, and the abbot of the monastery, Ajampasano, went to see her. And she, she, she said, I know that I'm going to die soon, and I know I might not be able to go home again, but I am so grateful. So grateful to meet up with the Dhamma, so grateful for the, all, you know, just all of these things. And, and Ajampasano said, yeah, Mary, I'm not worried about you. She was fine. And I was sitting there listening to this. This is quite a while before I became a nun, and I thought, that's what I want. I want to have that reaction. I want to be able to really appreciate all the good that has come into my life and to not, and not to go into remorse over it being finished. It's okay. That's how it works. 
I'm liable to die. I'm not exempt from death. There are sentient beings who are drunk on the vanity of life. And so what do we do? We, we do these things that are unskillful because we're just not paying attention. We're not valuing this life. So the advantage is we give up the intoxication with life. What's the advantage of reviewing this? I must be parted and separated from all that I hold dear and beloved. Sentient beings who aroused by desire and lust for the, what's dear and beloved do bad things by way of body, speech, or mind. And by reviewing this, we give up that desire and lust for their dear and beloved, or at least reduce it. So this is another place where we want to have some clarity around what it is to love. That there's a love with an interest in what does it give to me. There's a love in, you know, like, I love as long as, you know, my conditions are met. And then there's the development of a love that is really immeasurable and without conditions. And that often comes by insight. And the feeling, even towards your close family, is changed. Where there really is a love for them that is not shaken. And and the connection with them is not shaken by whatever happens. Whatever is likely to happen to them. Or whatever they might do. The advantage to reflecting on I'm the owner of my comma, heir to my comma, comma is my womb, my relative, my refuge. It's that we, that we pay attention to our conduct. We want that ground that we spring from and live on to be wholesome and good. So the noble disciple, so again, this is what happens with the noble disciple. They reflect, it's not just me who's liable to grow old. So it goes back to that teaching that the Buddha was talking about or Narada was talking about. For all sentient beings grow old according to their nature as long as they come and go and pass away and are reborn. When we review this subject... The path is born in us. We see the Dhamma. We really follow the Noble Eightfold Path. Being born in us means it arises, that that truth, that reality, that Dhamma, that spiritual energy comes up. We cultivate it, develop it, make much of it. And by doing so, those fetters that we have before awakening fall away. We eliminate underlying tendencies towards greed, hatred, and delusion. And the same with sickness. When we reflect on this, the path is born in us. Cultivate, develop, and make much of it. And then the fetters fall away. The 
desire, lust, hatred, ill will, ignorance. You can see the same thing repeated for each of these reflections. Who shall be the owner of my deeds and heir to my deeds? That would be me. But it's not just me that has that. Everybody has that. For others, sickness is natural, and so are old age and death. Though this is how their nature is, ordinary people feel disgusted. If I were to be disgusted with creatures whose nature is such, it would not be appropriate for me, since my life is just the same. Living in such a way, I understood the reality without attachments. I mastered all vanities of health, of youth, and even of life, seeing renunciation as sanctuary. Zeal sprang up in me as I looked at or looked towards Nibbana. Now I'm able to indulge in sensual pleasures. There's no turning back. I'm committed to the spiritual life. This is what the Buddha said. And I think that might be the end. Yeah, Mary? So it's essentially the idea that full enlightenment would look like not wanting life more than non-life. Yeah, and it's interesting because when we start to think about that or reflect on that, the Buddha said, this is not about... This is not about, like... um, nihilism, like not wanting to live, and it's not about the craving and desire for eternal life. It's about understanding that everything is based on causes and conditions, and that it unfolds in that way. And when we recognize that fully, then all of the desire, the energy, the unfinished business that we carry with us is completely dissolved. And there's complete peace. He said the highest happiness is that complete peace. Yes? I keep thinking how much is all of this dependent on a belief in reincarnation and rebirth? It's entirely woven in. It's like what Donna was saying it's entirely woven into the Buddha's teachings everywhere. Um, for anyone to think that they can't really, like, you know, that they can really teach Buddhism without that uh, isn't according to what the Buddha said. So how do we deal with that when we're not in that, in that state of recognizing that, and and there are a lot of people who do recognize that directly. They have memories of past lives. They see. So what happened to the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment was that he saw, like, eons of his own past lives, thousands of them, just psychic revelation. So he saw how karma worked, how living a life in a certain way produced or supported the conditions in the subsequent life. And then he saw that for other other people. He said it was just like 
being able to see a hallway with doors on both sides, and someone would be living a life in a certain way, come in through the door, leave out through another door, and live a life that is based on how things were before. So once there's an experience like this, because even sometimes people can remember maybe a dozen of their past lives, they see how they came to this life having certain likes and dislikes, having certain skills and talents. When you start to gain some direct experience of that and you see a child born and you see what they're, what they're into right away, it's like you have a really clear sense of where it comes from. And then as we develop in the path, we also can directly experience how the craving for all that begins to diminish. And the spiritual energy and like joy in the reality of life grows. So these people who have this kind of enlightenment or this, these realizations and the ignorance falls away, they're like the happiest people you'll ever see. They're completely light. Not necessarily, because people at that time, too, had a lot of different ideas. So when I, when I was saying about what if we aren't there yet, or we aren't, I think of it as yet, <laughs> and that, you know, for someone who, you know, you, you pick up what the Buddha says, the things that you can experience, so you go, yeah, that's true. I can see this, right? I can see that letting go of my agenda for my children brings a lot more peace and happiness to all of us. (laughs) For example, (laughs) you know, requirements that I might have for the people in my life. And when I let that go, it's better for everybody. Or there's all kinds of ways in which we might see the Buddhist teachings bring greater peace and happiness to us. And you just... You know, like hold those other. We might we might gain enough confidence in the Buddha's teaching that we hold those other things that we haven't yet directly experienced in a kind of provisional way, not rejecting, not accepting. Just like okay, let me see, let me see. Yeah. And he's not going to buy into right. reincarnation and karma. Yeah. yeah. Right. It really does depend on where you are yeah. when, you know. I don't think a lot of times um, what can come is this understanding that this is a natural part of life. I'm not the only one that experiences this that part might be more accessible than, okay, let's take the long view. You know, one of the um, times when I had an opportunity to guide a family through a tragedy, um, they were open and available to the long view. 
And it was enormously helpful. It really provided a freedom from the suffering that struck. And there is a a teaching by one of the bhikkhunis at the time of the Buddha because there were a number of nuns who had lost children, had their children, and she said to them, of course, they're nuns, right? They're totally, uh, on, you know, like they understand uh, rebirth and karma. And she said, if you knew where this child had been before and you knew where they were going, you wouldn't cry. Yeah. And it's like we have this time with them and then they go on. And that's true with everyone. Yeah, my friend herself, as she was dying, um, said to me, um, well, I've taken my children this far. Yeah. And now I can go. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what's coming up for me Well, and reflecting upon that reality, like what would it mean if I die tonight to those people in my life? That could happen. What would it mean? You know, how do I help prepare them for that possibility without making it some downer? You know, it's like, and and it's so true. The human mind is so skilled at like acting like this is not the reality. 